This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, Part 3. Tricky Dick. The 1968 presidential election felt like a watershed moment for Republicans. The moderate and conservative wings of the party were tearing it apart. Goldwater's resounding defeat in 64 left moderates feeling bitter and conservatives feeling adrift. The two sides were going to have to compromise if they stood any chance of winning the presidency, and they found that compromise in an unexpected place. Richard Nixon. Conservatives were surprised when Phyllis Schlafly came out for Nixon in 68. While most of the right wing supported Ronald Reagan, Phyllis, who may have been a little gun-shy after Goldwater's shellacking, had been won over by Nixon's tough talk about beefing up America's nuclear weapons program and meeting the Soviet threat head-on. Schlafly had spent the last decade railing against America's failure to keep up with the Soviets in the nuclear arms race, writing several books on the topic. As with A Choice Not an Echo, Phyllis worked closely with Admiral Chester Ward to lay out the argument that the U.S. was in grave danger. Phyllis also liked Nixon's promise to restore law and order, to end the Vietnam War, and to put an end to court-ordered integration busing. Nixon vowed to clean up the welfare program and restore order to college campuses. But for Phyllis, and many other grassroots conservatives, these were just so many cherries on top of the real issue that defined the election, the Soviet Union's rapid nuclear buildup. In collaboration with Chester Ward, Phyllis authored five books across the 60s and 70s on the Soviet threat, The Gravediggers, Strike from Space, The Betrayers, Kissinger on the Couch, and Ambush at Vladivostok. She had a flair for the dramatic that extended to her book titles. Kissinger on the Couch was unlike any of her other books, an 800-page in-depth analysis full of technical jargon. Her fans were frustrated by the book, and it didn't sell many copies, though Phyllis considered it one of the most important and influential books she ever wrote and insisted that it had in fact affected U.S. policies. Her rank-and-file Republican supporters may not have cared for it, but Phyllis was certain that policymakers did. She also wrote one book herself, Safe, Not Sorry, and the whole collection was written, as were all of her books, with the same tone and urgency of A Choice Not an Echo. Fear-mongering hyperbole meant to stir readers to action. And, with the exception of Kissinger on the Couch, they were published in the same manner of a choice. Cheap, self-published paperbacks. They sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Schlafly and Ward were a dynamic duo. Ward, who had served as a naval officer for many years and was a law professor who served on the Council of Foreign Relations, brought a technical expertise that Phyllis lacked. Phyllis had the talent to translate his dense and abstruse ideas into something that was easily consumed by a lay audience. And Fred, ever the supportive husband, provided fact-checking and an editorial eye. One of Phyllis's key philosophical arguments across these books was that the concept of peaceful coexistence did not mean the same thing to Soviets as it did to Americans. The Soviets cried peace while continuing to develop superior first-strike capabilities, and liberals had fallen for the rhetoric. How could freedom-loving Americans ever exist peacefully alongside 
the hideous cruelty, inhumanity, and immorality of the communists, as she put it. Liberals assumed that communists behaved rationally, but Phyllis knew that the communists would never rest until their pestilent ideology had taken over the whole world. And furthermore, at the heart of the liberal agenda was a desire for one-world government, with an all-powerful UN directly controlling every country that joined their coalition. Sound familiar? The New World Order hypothesis isn't just relegated to fringe conspiracy theorists. The Kennedy administration's nuclear test ban treaty was just one of many policies that set off Schlafly and the hawkish wing of the Republican Party. Both supporters and detractors went hard in the paint when it came to the ban, which required all test detonations to be performed underground. Phyllis organized a letter-writing campaign through the Illinois Federation of Republican Women and testified before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, while liberals courted business support, especially from the Farmers Union and the Grange, who were concerned about radioactivity in milk. They also encouraged religious bodies to issue sermons on behalf of the treaty. In the end, the Hawks lost, and the treaty was ratified by the Senate 80-19. to Schlafly especially took issue with Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara's strategic balance approach to the arms race and the shift towards second-strike parity rather than first-strike. At the end of the day, Schlafly and Ward, and other conservative hawks, had different parameters for what parity meant. Massive retaliation versus flexible response, heavy missiles with huge payloads or nimble and accurate strike capability total megatonnage, or readiness in the event of a possible strike. But perhaps a deeper argument wasn't even about how to achieve parity between the U.S. and the USSR, but about whether parity should be the goal at all. Much of the thinking around mutually assured destruction and detente strategies was that the road to peace required evenly matched world powers. If the USSR and the U.S. had the same weapons capability, neither would strike first, knowing that there could be no winner in such a clash. Schlafly and Ward obviously thought that superiority should be the aim, because the USSR wouldn't strike a more powerful enemy. And while Schlafly had ranted and raved about communist infiltration of the U.S. government for years, she didn't believe that McNamara and the Kennedy and Johnson administrations were conspiring with the Reds to weaken America. They weren't part of a communist plot. But what they feared even more than the buildup of Soviet nuclear power was the buildup of American power. This was the inherent weakness of the elitist liberal, who lacked the common sense of the average American. The everyman voter understood that strength wasn't philosophical, it wasn't based on debate or compromise. It was strength, muscle, intimidation, superiority. And the issue of superiority wasn't just one of nukes and bombers. It cut to the core of humanity. Schlafly and Ward urged their readers to draw on their faith and their most deeply held values as Americans to know what was right. And once you've done that, write to your senator. And so they did. But everyone knew that on an issue this big, this momentous, letter writing and cheap paperbacks weren't going to cut it. They needed power. Real power. They needed the House, the Senate, and the presidency. So the 1968 election wasn't just about big versus small government or law and order or welfare reform. Those things were important conservative priorities, to be sure. 
But 1968 was about the fate of Western civilization and the potential destruction of America. Just four years earlier, Johnson's campaign had aired its famous Daisy ad, suggesting that a Goldwater win would mean certain nuclear conflict. Nixon, buoyed by the grassroots conservative movement, turned the tables on the Democrats with regards to the nuclear question, and at just the right moment. Conservatives were skeptical of Nixon. He had the stink of liberalism on him. He'd been a moderate during his tenure as vice president under Eisenhower, and he'd run on moderate Republican policies in his ill-fated presidential run in 1960. Nixon knew that if he was going to win the nomination, he needed to change that perception. So he courted right-wing leaders like Strom Thurmond and Phyllis Schlafly. To Thurmond, he promised to appoint strict constructivist judges who would adjudicate only to the letter of the law. He promised that he would ease up on enforcing the Civil Rights Act. To Schlafly, he promised to restore military and nuclear superiority over the Soviets. But for Phyllis, there were other reasons she felt obligated to support Nixon, mainly that most of her supporters were for him. She told Chester Ward that of the 3,000 women who had supported her during the NFRW debacle, only four had come out for George Wallace and just a dozen for Reagan. The Midwest, in general, was strongly behind Nixon. Even so, many grassroots conservatives were surprised, even alarmed, to see their leaders coming out for a historically liberal to moderate Republican. But Nixon was saying all the right words and making all the right promises, and so he managed to win over both sides of the party. But honestly, the bare fact of it is that Republicans tasted a win in the air, and Nixon seemed like the guy to bring it home. The Democrats were more divided than they'd been since 1896. Blue-collar workers in the Midwest and Northeast and white voters in the South were disenchanted with the left. The promises of the New Deal and liberalism weren't cutting it anymore. Race had divided the whole nation, but especially the South. The spectacle of race riots were hung firmly around the necks of Democrats. From 1960 to 1966, crime rates rose 60%, and Republicans had, for now, managed to corner the market on law-and-order rhetoric. A massive political realignment was in the works, and it was clear that it wasn't going to favor liberal Democrats. As with everything she did, Phyllis went all in on Nixon's campaign. She ran as a delegate for him at the RNC and got together with Chester Ward to write The Betrayers, hoping it could do for Nixon what a choice had done for Goldwater in 64. It wasn't all rosy at the RNC. Phyllis ran for platform committee, which rules stated had to have one woman serving on it. But Senator Charles Percy spoke out against Schlafly for being too conservative, and she lost the vote 42 to 14. She cited the incident as proof that liberal Republicans wanted to put conservatives in their place when it came to policymaking, that they treated them like second-class citizens. And there's no doubt that Goldwater's defeat the previous election led to some of these icy interactions. Whatever their divides, Nixon won the convention pretty handily. Spiro Agnew was chosen as vice president in an attempt to appease both sides of the party, but Instead, it just left everyone feeling disappointed, as compromise so often does. Nonetheless, Phyllis went home elated. She knew this time she had a winner, 
and spent the fall speaking at large rallies in Wisconsin, Missouri, Minnesota, Illinois, and Texas. She was Nixon's unofficial liaison to the right wing. In November, Democrats managed to keep control of Congress, and while Nixon won the electoral vote handily, he only won the popular vote by a hair, a picture of the deep divides in 1968. And then Nixon set to work, disappointing conservatives. Phyllis didn't seek a full-time appointment in the administration, but she did ask to serve on the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. Instead, Nixon put liberal Republican and primary loser Nelson Rockefeller on the board. And that was just the beginning. Instead of enacting the conservative agenda he'd run on, Nixon decided that the ticket to re-election was to beat liberals at their own game, expanding welfare, civil rights, women's rights, and environmental legislation. He also came out in support of the Equal Rights Amendment, which we'll finally dive into in the next episode. In 1970, as disenchantment with Nixon was really setting in, Republican Party operatives were again looking for someone to run against a Democratic incumbent in Illinois, and this time they went straight to the source. They told Phyllis that a secret Republican caucus had voted unanimously to endorse her to run for Illinois' 23rd district. But ultimately, Phyllis fell prey to the same urban, rural, elitist, populist dynamic that had sunk her 1952 run. When she tried to frame her opponent George Shipley as a flaming liberal, which didn't really resonate, he was very much a moderate Democrat, he attacked her for being a Harvard-educated urban elite, which very much did resonate, because that's what she was. Shipley had personally met half the district, or so he claimed, and spoke with the thick twang of rural Illinois. And what's more, he was known and loved for his pork-barrel politics that brought a lot of much-needed federal funds into the district. Unlike in her 1952 campaign, Phyllis had a lot more money and a lot more support, but ultimately faced the same problem she had two decades earlier. She campaigned on law and order, a major Republican talking point at the national level, and her go-to denunciation of communist radicalism. But her would-be constituents didn't care much about those things. Rural Illinois was not overrun with crime and communism. It was unemployed. Plants were closed, money was tight, interest rates were sky-high, and much of this was blamed on the retraction of federal government projects. In other words, the problem was what many were calling the Republican recession. Schlafly recognized the mismatch in messaging and tried to pivot to talking about the economy and jobs, hitting Shipley hard on his vote to send foreign aid to Southeast Asia and voting against a cost-of-living increase in Social Security benefits. But none of it stuck. Shipley spoke the language of the district. He told a local paper, She gives the impression she's an expert on military affairs and foreign affairs. I say I'm not an expert on any of these things, that I need the guidance of the people of my district. There were also scores of sexist attacks about her having children that she literally needed to get back in the kitchen. At a barbecue-come-campaign event, Shipley asked his constituents, Who here thinks my Harvard-educated opponent ought to quit attacking my foreign aid votes and stay home with her husband and six kids? We do, was the reply. I don't tell her how to take care of her family, and she shouldn't tell me how to take care of my constituents. Phyllis's rejoinder leaned on Fred for credibility. My opponent says a woman's place is in the home, but my husband replies that a woman's place is in the house. 
the U.S. House of Representatives. That same year, feminist activist Bella Abzug also ran for Congress using the same turn of phrase, the only time the two women had anything in common. In the end, Phyllis lost 46 to 54 percent, a much better showing than in 1952, but not near enough to win the seat. Again, she refused to attribute her loss to sexism. That was the last time Phyllis ran for elected office. All the while, Nixon went on expanding the welfare state and increasing government regulations, including the Environmental Protection Agency. But his foreign policy made conservatives positively apoplectic. He was prolonging the war in Southeast Asia and even opened negotiations with North Vietnam. In 1971, Nixon opened relations with China, which infuriated conservatives who had spent two decades fighting against recognition of the Chinese Communist Party. And, of course, he wasn't pursuing the aggressive arms buildup that the hawkish wing of his party had demanded. That year, Schlafly polled 5,000 readers of the Phyllis Schlafly Report, and a third of respondents who had voted Nixon in 1968 planned not to vote for him again in 72. Schlafly publicly denounced Nixon in 71, writing, The Nixon administration has continued the Robert McNamara policy of military inferiority, even in the face of the tremendous Soviet missile and naval buildup, thereby abandoning the traditional Republican policy of military superiority. The Nixon administration has done nothing to change the disastrous course of nuclear disarmament carried out for seven years by McNamara. Later that year, conservatives, including Schlafly, met with Barry Goldwater to gin up some kind of strategy that would force Nixon to get serious about the Soviet threat. Imagine their surprise when Goldwater told them that not only did they need to stand behind Nixon or risk losing the 72 election to a Democrat, but that he agreed completely with Nixon's foreign policy, and that Henry Kissinger was more conservative than anyone in the room. That must have stung. Then, in 71, Nixon met with Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev to sign the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. This was basically Phyllis's worst nightmare. She wrote, For the first time in history, a great nation, at the peak of its economic and military strength, surrendered its military leadership without even a whimper. The SALT Pact is the obituary of the United States' strategic power. And that, folks, is why the United States is today among the weakest military powers in the world, with a mere 750 bases in 80 countries and a budget that's only the size of the next nine largest national militaries combined. Whatever shall we do? Naturally, conservatives began talking about challenging Nixon, either with a Republican primary challenger or through a third party. It seemed obvious that he was vulnerable, having pissed off a large chunk of his constituency. But when their favorite, Representative John Ashbrook, absolutely crashed in the state primary elections, he refused to even allow his name on the ballot at the RNC. Phyllis and her supporters watched as Nixon easily won the nomination for his second term. It seemed they had overestimated their influence in the party. Or, at least, the rest of the party thought that challenging a sitting president in a re-election campaign was just too dangerous. Either way, Nixon sailed into the White House with one of the largest landslide victories in American history. And then, a funny thing happened. Nixon was a paranoid fellow, 
And during his re-election campaign, members of his administration developed a scheme to spy on the Democratic National Committee. Watergate, the scandal that launched a thousand blank gates, occupied the entirety of Nixon's short second term. He resigned in disgrace in August of 1974. The incident dealt a huge blow to the Republican Party, left, right, and center. And the blame game pointed in all directions. Liberals saw Nixon as the far right wing of the Republican Party. Conservatives saw him as a liberal in sheep's clothing. Moderate Republicans saw him as the potential savior of their fractured party who had gone down in flames. Forced to put their hopes in Gerald Ford, the left flank of the party was doomed to disappointment for the foreseeable future. The conservative right wing could now be blamed for not one, but two embarrassments. Goldwater in 64, and Nixon in 74. It was clear that the Schlafly contingent was a declining force in political life. But far from tucking tail and conceding to their moderate counterparts, the right geared up for a fight. They didn't feel responsible for the humiliation of Nixon. If anything, they felt vindicated after opposing him in 72, seeing him for the snake he really was. They began organizing committees and strategies. They established the now all-powerful Conservative Political Action Conference, as well as the National Conservative Political Action Committee, and they set their sights on the next battle. Something that could rejuvenate and redefine the grassroots conservative movement. And they found it in an unlikely place. The widely popular and seemingly innocuous Equal Rights Amendment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.